0: Welcome back to The Suburban Urbanist. Uh, As always, I am your host, Jim. And today, this is episode six, which will be another in the lecture series. And today I'll be covering the policy process model. You know, I failed to mention this in the first episode, but uh, I do want to give credit where credit is due. And these uh, lecture series talks were put together using uh, the book Public Policy, Politics, Analysis, and Alternatives, the sixth edition by Michael Kraft and Scott Furlong, as well as a Practical Guide for Policy Analysis, the fourth edition by Eugene Bardock. They are the two texts that I use in, in my course that I teach on public policy analysis. So I, I did want to point that out, give credit where credit is due, um, and uh, I'll try to remember to do that on every future episode, but I f- did fail to mention it uh, on the last episode of the lecture series, so I wanted to make a point to emphasize. So again, that's Public Policy, Politics, Analysis, and Alternatives, the sixth edition by Michael Kraft and Scott Furlong, and a Practical Guide for Policy Analysis, the fourth edition by Eugene Bardock. Both are great resources, and uh, I know they're, they're texts textbooks, but I do think that if you're interested in learning more about public policy than then, then what I'm presenting here, that they would be good uh, learning tools for you. So I would encourage you to check them out. With that said, uh, again today I'm gonna to be talking about the policy process model. And in doing so, I will uh, showcase competing theories about how policies are developed, uh, explain what the policy cycle is, and then the six stages of the policy process model. Hopefully this will help you understand that there are several key stages of work to develop public policy, all of which are influenced by different policy actors. With that said, I'll keep this intro short. Uh, I did wanna mention as always, uh, you can uh, contact me at suburbanermanist at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for future episodes, thoughts, comments, Uh, Please also visit my website suburbanurbanist.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, let's go ahead and do this thing. Uh, Here is episode six of the suburban urbanist lecture series, the policy process model. episode I discussed how the structure of government and the various actors involved in the policy making process in the United States uh, complicated and uh, created a slow process that often results in incremental changes versus large sweeping reforms. This complexity is by design so that no one actor can monopolize the policy process. In our government structure, we have a system of checks and balances. Uh, legislation needs to be passed by both houses of Congress, then can either be approved or vetoed by the president. And even if it makes it pass the president, that policy is subject to judicial review and can be ruled as unconstitutional. If we think about the Patriot Act, for example, it was quickly passed by Congress, signed by the president, but elements of it were later ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Beyond the actual structure of government, we have government actors that are guided by ideologies that manifest itself into political parties. And finally, outside of government, we have informal actors who, who do influence policy. And if you remember from last episode, those include the uh, group, interest groups, nonprofits, the public, and the media. And all of these inputs, uh, are what make policymaking extremely complex and a long drawn out process. So in order to kind of understand how things work, social scientists use various theories or models. And this is no different from any other science where theories are developed in order to attempt to explain something or create meaning out of what otherwise might seem to be a complicated and chaotic world in which nothing makes sense and all acts are seemingly random. Public policy and government is complicated and it is chaotic. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, almost everything is a public problem. But if that's the case, then how is it that policymakers decide which public problems to prioritize over others? And so policy theories, like all theories, generally try to explain why things happen the way that they do. Or in this case, they try to explain why certain policies are adopted and others are not. They try to focus people's attention on the most important factors that affect government decision making. And so there's five competing models used by social scientists in in terms of policy making. And they are elite theory, group theory, institutional theory, rational choice theory, and political systems theory. And I'll get into each one of those, what each one of those is. But collectively, they offer a different perspective on the principal determinants of decision-making within government and therefore on what people might regard as the major forces shaping the direction and content of public policies. So, first off, elite theory. Elite theory is pretty pretty easy to understand. It emphasizes how the values and preferences of governing elites differ from those of the public at large and how that affects public policy development so the main premise of elite theory argues that the u.s essentially is not as democratic as as we think it is because it's dominated by powerful elites of varying types and so th- who are these elites well they are there could be economic elites uh, which are Foundations, uh, wealthy people, corporate executives, uh, there's cultural elites, actors, filmmakers, singers, uh, elected officials, uh, could be political elites, uh, scientists could also be elites because of their expertise, but very simply they're the ones that, that catch the attention of the media um, and that people regard as experts or use wealth uh, or power to get what they want. And so if we think about the 2016 presidential election, it was pretty much like every other presidential election, which had a battle of two elites. Uh, Donald Trump was an economic elite and Hillary Clinton a political elite. The difference in this was that the, how they positioned themselves to the general public. Uh, President Trump positioned himself almost as an anti-elite uh, in some senses, stating that he was going to quote, drain the swamp of the political elites in Washington and represent the common person. And this messaging uh, played on elite theory and helped propel him to an upset victory in the election. Another very current example is the the campaign for women's equality in the workplace and to end sexual harassment in all forms. This activity has been occurring for a very long time, but it took cultural elites um, celebrities speaking out to raise the debate to the national level and get the coverage that it currently has. So if we think of the faces of the Me Too campaign, we often think of Rose McGowan or Alyssa Milano or Ali Reisman or Ashley Judd. And these are the uh, cultural elites that help propel the, the Me Too campaign into prominence at a local level uh, elite theory can manifest itself with uh, local business leaders if there's a large company located in a city that can wield a very powerful arm when it comes to local policy making or even um, certain developers that that may seem to get the most development activity or economic incentives from a city those can be considered uh, elites at the local level So the second theory is group theory, Uh, and group theory sees public policy as the product of a continuous struggle among organized interest groups. In contrast to elite theory, supporters of group theory, especially pluralists, tend to believe that power in the U.S. political system is widely shared among interest groups, each of which seek to access the policymaking process. So just quickly, a pluralist is an advocate of a system in which two or more states, groups, principles, or um, sources of authority coexist. The idea of group theory is that the balance between these groups helps to ensure that no one group dominates the policy process. So labor unions, for example, balance the power of corporate entities that employ their members by advocating for employee rights. However, it is reasonable to assume that groups with the greater financial resources are likely to have more influence than those that are not well organized and lack financial resources. And this is where some could argue that group theory kind of overlaps with elite theory, but that just goes to show that these theories are are not standalone things. Uh, They're just ways to explain Um, how policy is made, but there can be different explanations for for everything that's going on. So a modern variant of group theory is called the advocacy coalition framework. And this focuses on the interactions of competing advocacy coalitions, particularly within a policy subsystem such as agriculture, telecommunications, energy, or environmental protection. Policy change can occur over time as each coalition uses its resources to change its views or policy beliefs of leading policy actors. Proving this concept, environmentalists to some extent have persuaded the business community to think about the long-term goals of sustainable development. In turn, the business community has been able to persuade many actors in the policy arena that new policy approaches such as market incentives, collaboration, and information provision are more attractive than conventional regulation, which they view as burdensome and ineffective. So an example of this would be LEED certification, uh, which is leadership in energy and environmental design. It's a rating system that's devised by the United States Green Building Council to evaluate the environmental performance of a building and encourage market transformation towards sustainable design. When I was working for the city uh, through the Community Reinvestment Area Tax Abatement Program, the city rewarded projects that pursued certain levels of LEED certification, and these projects were essentially greenlit and did not require financial underwriting uh, to get longer terms on their tax abatement. So that was one way that the city tried to incentivize um, greater uh, sustainable development by, by rewarding businesses and developers for developing LEED certified buildings. And so, many students of public policy then argue that group theory exaggerates the role of interest groups in policymaking and it underestimates the role of leadership of public officials and the considerable discretion that they have in the policymaking choice. Assigning too much power to organize interest groups oversimplifies a very complex dynamic that exists in policymaking. Public officials also use organized interest groups to promote their own political agendas and to build support for policy initiatives. The relationship between groups and policymakers is often subtle, but it is a two way exercise of influence. So, the next theory is institutional theory. And institutional theory emphasizes the formal and legal aspects of government structure. Institutional models look at the way governments are arranged their legal powers, and their rules for decision-making. and These rules include basic characteristics such as the degree of access to decision-making provided to the public, the availability of information from government agencies, and the sharing of authority between national and state governments under federalism. So a major tenet of institutionalism is the structure and rules make a big difference in the kind of public policy process that occurs and which policy actors are likely to influence them. The term institutions can have several meanings. It refers to both organizations and the rules that are used to structure patterns of interaction within and across organizations. And many kinds of institutions can influence public policy, and these could include markets, uh, individual firms or corporations, national, state, local government, voluntary associations such as political parties, interest groups, and even foreign political regimes. So, analysts use institutional theory to study how these different ent- entities perform in the policymaking process as well as the rules, norms, and strategies used by individuals who operate within particular organizations such as the U.S. Congress or the federal court system. Institutional theory is a simple reminder that procedural rules in certain aspects of government structure can very much empower or obstruct political interest. You know, there's no such thing as a neutral rule. Uh, All rules have real consequences for the ways decisions are made, helping some and hurting others, and they can make some groups more influential than others and some policy outcomes more likely than others. So the, for example, think of the Senate filibuster rule, which allows a very small minority to impact the policymaking process by stopping other Senate business. So just to highlight this, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the West Wing. And There's a particular episode um, that comes to mind when I think about the filibuster rule. In this episode there's a bill that's about to be passed by the Senate and one lone senator wants to delay the vote and open debate back up to include more funding for autism research. He stands alone in this desire and and he begins a one-man filibuster to delay the vote. In the episode, the rules are such that to keep the filibuster going, he cannot sit, he cannot pause, uh, he must continue talking. If he stops, all debate gets closed and the vote is taken. And so the fictional Bartlett administration discovers why this issue is so important to the senator. Uh, He has a grandson who has autism. And so they finally decide to help um, using a rule where the speaker can yield to a question uh, to help the filibuster continue, and so they round up a couple of senators to 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 help him out, and so he is able to yield to a question, which leads to another person uh, going on uh, their own little filibuster, and and that lone original senator is able to sit down, uh, grab a drink of water, and rest a little bit, and so eventually the uh, the time period in which. Uh, the bill would need to be passed that night or whatever is passed and, and and debate is allowed to open back up on that. And so moving off of institutional theory, we move into rational choice theory. And rational choice theory draws from economics, um, particularly microeconomic theory, and it often uses elaborate mathematical modeling. Uh, rational choice theory is widely applied uh, to public policy. It assumes that in decision-making, individuals are rational actors. Um, that is, so they, they seek to maximize attainment of their preferences or further their own self-interest. And so the theory suggests that analysts consider a couple of different things. Um, what they value, uh, how they perceive a given situation, the information they have about it and various uncertainties that might affect the outcome, how a particular context or the expectations of others, for example, might affect, or uh, for example, rules and norms, how those things may affect their actions. And the goal of this is to do or sort of predict how individual behavior under a variety of conditions will affect the policymaking process. And so rational choice theory, in essence, tries to explain public policy in terms of actions of self-interested individual policy actors, whether they're voters, uh, corporate lobbyists, agency officials, or uh, policymakers themselves. So an example of this is a, pol- is a politician choosing the policy alternative that is more likely to help them get re-elected. So often you see In election years, politicians are less likely to uh, debate or vote on critical policies because they're kind of holding them back uh, to use them as campaign material. And uh, a primary example that I can think of is the, the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. When he died, it left a spot on the Supreme Court. And there was a, a republican majority in congress and a democratic president president obama and justice scalia was one of the most conservative judges on the court and so the republican ruled congress refused to consider anyone that the president would nominate for the position why well an election was upcoming and they wanted a chance to potentially put a Republican in the White House that would allow them to replace uh, Justice Scalia with another conservative judge. And so it's safe to say that it was the self-interest of Congress to wait and see the outcome of the presidential election between President Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton in order to try and ensure that the conservative judge would take the place of uh, Justice Scalia, and this would maintain the current balance of power on the court, not risk it tilting towards the left. So with the importance of the Supreme Court plays in policymaking, one judge can wield a lot of power, and their strategy worked. Uh, President Trump uh, won the election, and they were able to replace Justice Scalia with a conservative judge. So, critics of rational choice theory argue that individuals are not always single minded pursuers of their own self interest. Uh, the critics question that assumptions that underlie the theory, uh, such as the ability of individuals to behave rationally, when they lack pertinent information or when decision makers have different and unequal information. But despite this criticism, rational choice theory provides insights into political behavior that can affect the design of public policies. Next would be political systems theory, and political systems theory stresses the way the political system Uh, as in the institutions and activities of the government, respond to demands that arise from its environment, such as public opinion and uh, pressures from interest groups. Systems theory is a formal way to think about the interrelationships of institutions and policy actors and their role in the larger environment. So, inputs into the political system come from demands and support. Demands are the claims individuals and groups seeking to further their interests and values make onto the political system. Support is evident when people obey the law and respect the system's rules and procedures, and when they vote in elections and express trust and confidence in the institution and leaders. So in this theory, the political system responds to demands and support in the process of policymaking and produces outputs, uh, decisions, laws, or policies that over time may create real changes called policy outcomes in the situations that prompted the demands and support in the first place. Systems theory is a simple way to portray how governments respond to society's demands on them. It proposes an almost biological model of politics, suggesting that governments and public officials react to the political climate much like organisms respond to environmental stimulus. So for example, when public problems lead individuals and groups to make demands on government to deal with the situation, the government acts and the system readjusts in light of the particular decisions and their effects. The policy process model then is a cycle that shows the flow of events to create policy. It's in, in essence it's a logical sequence of activities affecting the development of public policies. It depicts the policymaking process and the broad relationships among policy actors within each stage. And so what are the different stages? And that would be the policy cycle and there's six st- stages to the policy cycle. Stage 1 is the problem definition and agenda setting stage. Stage 2 is the the stage where policy is actually formulated. Stage three is the policy legitimation stage. Stage four is the implementation stage. Five is the evaluation. And then finally, six is the actual policy change. And this process is, is always happening, it's continuous. It, it's not a one-time set of actions. And that's because no policy decision or solution is ever final. There's always changing conditions, new information, evaluations, and shifting opinions that often stimulate reconsideration and revision of established policies. In the real world, these stages often overlap or are sometimes skipped. In other words, policies might be formulated before they are high on the political agenda, or it may be impossible to differentiate the actual policy formulation stage from when it is legitimated. However, the policy process model captures important aspects of policymaking that really do correspond to political activity. As review of the six components or stages of the model makes clear, policy analysis can potentially affect each of these stages. That is, methods of analysis can provide insights that may influence one stage or another in policymaking, whether it's agenda set setting and, or how policies are formulated or how existing programs are evaluated and, and changed. So what happens at each point of the stages of the cycle? Well, first is problem definition. Uh, Defining a problem is very complex. Uh, The search for answers usually involves a lot of different perspectives. And then how one defines a problem uh, may also go a long way towards the solutions that are created to deal with it. So a person's perspective and background very much determine how they define the problem and how they relate to that problem. Personal ideology, as much as you'd like to think you can take it out, it's going to influence how the problem is defined, or even if the individual considers the situation to be a problem at all. This means problem definition by its nature will always be biased. And so this is what we mean when people say that issues are framed or they're spun a particular way. Uh, They emphasize a certain viewpoint on the problem based on their personal experience. Their opponents on the other side would then spin it in the other direction to convey the different perspective that they have. And so making comparisons between the two is, is part of problem definition so the Kraft and furlong book uses the example of gas prices and uh, this is relevant uh, particularly in my state ohio which uh, the governor recently is talking about raising the gas tax by 18 cents and you know we as americans might think that gasoline prices and gasoline taxes are too high and that we would argue for relief however if they compared the price of gasoline in the united states to the price of gasoline in Europe or Japan, where it is significantly higher because of government taxes, they might conclude that the US prices are in fact quite low. The various formal and informal policy actors that we discussed on the last episode are almost always deeply involved in defining a problem. And they may issue reports or interpret reports or, uh, you know, hit the press uh, favoring their particular point of view. And so in when I was working for the city, we had a large department store that closed. The local newspaper basically painted it as part of a larger problem that the downtown of the city was on the verge of, of losing uh, you know, a major company and that this was a very, very bad thing. Well, the city in turn released a memo that framed it in a different light and that it was a long overdue consequence of the changing nature of retail and an opportunity to take a prime piece of real estate and turn it into something special. In this scenario, both the the media and the city were dealing with the same problem, but they had different perspectives on it. So once the problem is defined, the next thing that we need to talk about is agenda setting because defining the problem is not enough the public and policymakers must recognize uh, that it is a problem. And when they do that, it's referred to as putting something on the agenda. And the agenda is simply the list of policies where actions become likely. It's it's not easy for problems to get on the agenda because at any given moment, there's thousands of issues that are competing for attention. And because of this competition for space, many problems that government could potentially address never capture the attention and are often neglected. And so, one such example that Kraft and Furlong use is population growth. Um, So, the United States is growing fast, is growing as fast or faster than really any other industrialized nation in the world. Its growth rate at a little less than 1% a year is five to 10 times that of most European nations, partially because of uh, recent immigration policies, although obviously that's in flux at the current moment. So the Census Bureau projected that the US population, which was uh, about 325 million in 2016, is likely to rise to around 400 million by 2050 depending on the rate of immigration. This is a gain of 75 million people over its 2016 size, or the equivalent of adding two states the size of California to the nation by 2050. Except for a few cities and regions, however, population growth has never truly been an issue that's commanded much attention from either the US public or the elected officials. So how does something get on the agenda? Just because there's a problem, it does not mean that it will attract government attention or be addressed. And so the term non-issues best distinguishes those problems that fail to gain attention. Uh, Some issues are intentionally kept off the agenda by those who oppose acting on them. And so if we think uh, about civil rights in much of the South during the 50s and 60s, those issues were intentionally left off the agenda. Other issues have often been ignored by the public and policymakers. When policymakers begin active discussions about a problem and then trying to identify solutions for them, that's when it is on the agenda. So Kraft and Furlong discuss two types of agenda. There's a systemic agenda where the public is aware of and may be discussing an issue. And then there's also an institution or a government agenda, where policymakers give active and serious consideration. When the term agenda is used, it simply means that subjects gain such attention and become possible objects of policy action. The agenda obviously isn't really published anywhere, but it's it's very clear. Uh, it's the one. It's the things that the elected officials are choosing to discuss what the media is covering prominently and what interest groups and other policy actors work on at any given time. So we can think of taxes, we can think of immigration, we can think of climate change, uh, you know, all of those things are seemingly on on either the systemic agenda or the institutional agenda. An agenda setting is central to the policy process. If it does not get attention then it will likely go without a government response. So, how does something move then onto the agenda? Well, it, it, if you think about elite theory, policymaking elites in government can definitely define a problem and raise its visibility. So members of Congress or the President may highlight a particular concern or issue that they want addressed. So if we think about President Trump and how his campaign platform led to Congress attempting to act or acting on healthcare reform, tax reform, and now immigration, those are, you know, a political elite trying to put things on the agenda. Government agencies that deal with particular problems can also raise awareness and move issues on the agenda. And then the media, by deciding what to report on or highlighting particular public problems, may sway public opinion about them. So some issues will always get on the agenda automatically. They are forced on there or required because the government has to deal with them. So, if we think about the recent government shutdown, that would be an example of an issue automatically being on the agenda. However, for optional issues, it really requires three streams of influence that flow through society, and the book defines these as the uh, problem stream, the policy stream, and the political stream. And when these converge, they create opportunities to consider certain issues, whether whether they successfully move on the agenda or not is sometimes in the hands of influential people or leaders who invest much of their time and resources in that issue. So the problem stream. Well, according to Kraft and Furlong, the problem stream refers to the various bits of information available on the problem, who it affects and in what ways. So for example, government reports and studies. This information may help promote an issue onto the agenda or prevent it from being able to be uh, addressed. Additionally, uh, a crisis can definitely put something onto the agenda and it would fall into that problem stream identity as well. So if we think of the 9-11 terrorist attacks or natural disasters, these crises are sometimes linked to powerful national priorities such as defense, public safety, public health, which then spurs the government into action. So, shifting to the policy stream, the policy stream refers to what might be done about a problem. And this really does look at policy alternatives that are developed by uh, congressmen and their staffs or agency officials, could be interest groups, academics, policy analysts, etc. And the policy ideas tend to circulate within the specialist communities or uh, iron triangles of most that are most concerned about the problem. And with the public through books, magazines, broadcast media, and the internet, these things can really bring to the public's attention policy alternatives that are inconsistent with current the p- current political climate may be dropped from consideration. Uh, until that political climate improves. Those that fit better with the political climate may receive serious attention from policymakers and and the other policy actors involved. And then we have the political political stream. And this refers to, again, to the political climate or the public mood is probably a better way to think of this. And it's really evident in public opinion polls, uh, how we elect people or what the results of those elections are and how active or how strong interest groups are. So when all three of these things converge, policy folks have their best chance to get things onto the agenda and get things approved and dealt with. So a, an executive such as the president, governor, or mayor has the unique ability to be a powerful agenda setter because of the enormous immediate attention that they receive. However, you know, leadership on these issues can come from uh, a plethora of different sois- sources. At the national level, congressional committees and subcommittees often are hotbeds of innovative policy ideas precisely because members and their staffs are continually seeking ways to improve public policy but also enhance their own visibility Uh, and compete with the other major party so if we think about the stuff that's happening in Congress and all these subcommittees they're getting a lot of attention Uh, some of the people that are involved in those are now running for president so that that just kind of showcases what I mean policy think tanks and interest groups are also very strong sources of policy proposals Um, the academic field, uh, colleges, universities, professional so- associations, and even the business community are also very good sources of policy ideas. And so when we have all of these ideas, something is on the agenda. We have to formulate the policy, and that's where the policy formulation comes in. So the development of proposed courses of action to help resolve a problem is the policy formulation stage. So what to do with a problem and creates a bunch of policy alternatives. And these are continually being studied and advocated as part of the policy stream and constantly being evaluated against, you know, how it can be accepted. And so among the standards for policy acceptance that Kraft and Furlong point out are economic cost, social and political acceptability, the likely effectiveness that the solution or the alternative will address the problem. And so at this stage, policy analysis is happening all the time because there's a constant looking for information ideas that will help um, the policy actors pursue their goals and achieve a solution to this problem. So if we, the president, for example, draws not only from his White House staff, but also the executive office of the president, which includes all the specialized agencies, whether it's the National Security Council, the economic advisors, environmental quality, the uh, office of management and budget, and then interest groups are also active contributors to this policy formulation as they attempt to shape policy to serve their own needs. And so when policy analysts are assessing policy alternatives, they're essentially looking at three things. First, they start by examining the problem definition to determine whether they are based, whether that definition is based on appropriate data analysis. Next, they want to find out who's involved in the formulation process, who's leading it, and whether there are any conflicts of interest that exist. And then finally, analyzing the main assumptions and any analysis that was used to determine whether those means were valid. And so when you have all these alternatives, there's several instruments of public policy that that can be done. And the book, uh, the Craft and Furlong book points out five main instruments of public policy. And these are regulation, government management, taxing and spending and market mechanisms and education and information. Regulations are government decrees that either require citizens to do something or prevent them to doing so. Particular requirements ensure that corporations, individuals, even units of government are following these these laws. And regulations impose fines, possibly imprisonment, uh, if they're not complied with. And so for the most part, citizens and corporations adhere to these legal requirements voluntarily, but the means are available to enforce the regulations when necessary. Next, government management. And this is where the government uses direct services or direct management of resources as tools of, of public policy. It could be education, defense, public parks, and most municipal services, such as police and fire protection, are examples of policies that governments implement by providing the service directly to the citizens. Governments offer most of these services because they are needed to be provided in a certain way. Other services involved in government uh, may not be needed to be done in a certain way, so those could be opportunities to contract out services. So, for example, the city I worked for, property management of city-owned buildings. That was something that was contracted out. Jails uh, are something that have been privatized in the past, although that's created all kinds of issues. But the decision to contract out services includes policymakers evaluating the options uh, by using certain criteria, and this could be effectiveness, cost, or accountability. And even if government's contract work out, they are still responsible for ensuring that the work is quality, even though the private sector is providing those services. The next tool of public policy would be taxing and spending. Governments very clearly use their ability to tax and spend to achieve policy goals and objectives. Uh, One form of spending policy is direct payment of money to citizens. So if we think of social social security, this is an obvious example. Uh, The federal government transfers money from people who are working to retirees or others who are covered by the system's rules. They provide a direct payment to them. Uh, Governments can also use tax policy to promote or discourage certain activities. So if we think about states that have sin taxes. These are taxes that are on tobacco, alcohol, and other things that can be classified as quote unquote sins. The idea is that by driving the price up it will deter people from purchasing those items. And so the Kraft and Furlong book actually points out the tax on cigarettes in New York at the time the book was written was $4.35 per pack, which is quite astonishing. Next is market mechanisms. Governments can take advantage of market mechanisms uh, in public policy. So using the market may be a decision by the government not to intervene in any way, but instead to allow the laws of supply and demand to work. So for example, um, until recently, the government had not really done anything about uh, internet sales or e-commerce in terms of imposing taxes on our purchases from whether it's Amazon or Wayfair or whoever. And this was despite local merchants who found themselves losing market share to Amazon and those other companies. Uh, governments also actively use market incentives rather than other approaches to achieve policy goals. And so I mentioned lead certification and how cities might give additional tax abatements for those that are pursuing lead certification uh, in pursuit of their environmental policy. So that there's an example. Next would be education, information, and persuasion. Another policy instrument available to government is providing information to educate the citizenry, while then also trying to persuade them to behave in a certain way. So if we think again about cigarettes, the Surgeon General's warning on the packs of cigarettes that try to educate you that you know smoking can cause cancer that's an example of the government providing information to try to deter you from doing an activity so there's another thing that craft and furlong talk about which is called the lowey policy typology and I, i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly policymakers are likely to think about policy options or alternatives in terms of the tools that they have at their dispense. So policy analysts think about the different kinds of policies that governments adopt and why they do it for different reasons. And the goal is to understand the differences that exist among policies and the political conditions that lead to one policy versus another. And so the craft and furlong uh, use a typology developed by Theodore Lowy uh, in 1964. And according to Mr. Lowy, all government functions can be classified into three types. There's distributive, redistributive, and regulatory. Distributive are individual programs or grants that a government provides without regard to limited resources or zero-sum situations. And zero-sum situations are those in which one Group's gain is another one's loss. Redistributive is what is policies that create a sort of conflict. They provide benefits to one category of individuals at the expense of another. So if we think of affirmative action as a redistributive policy, it's allowing, it's giving essentially additional points or criteria to a certain segment of society over another. And so redistributive policies often reflect ideological or or class conflict, or in in affirmative action would be racial conflict. And then finally, there's regulatory. Regulatory policy is government restriction of individual choice to keep conduct from, quote, transcending acceptable bounds. And there's two subcategories within the Lowy typology uh, of regulatory policy. First is competitive regulation. And this is mostly associated with regulating uh, specific industries. um, For example, computer software, communications companies. And so an example of a competitive regulation would be antitrust actions, breaking up those companies to provide a, a more fair market. And then the second is protecting the general public from activities that occur in the private sector. So an example of this would be workplace health and safety. Now, these types of policies can be controversial because it's the government intervening in the action of private industries. So this then leads us to the next phase of the policy cycle, which is policy legitimation. And policy legitimation is giving legal Credence or legal force to decisions or providing a justification for an action on a policy. So, this could be a vote in Congress, it could be an executive order, uh, or a judicial decision. And this legitimation is a step in the policy process that, in one sense, is simple, and in another sense, it could be very complex. It's simple when it merely means that a recognized authority has approved a policy proposal. So for example, we have uh, how a bill becomes a law. If it goes to Congress, it's approved uh, by both houses and then the president signs it, then it's fairly simple. The complex view is that this process requires more than a majority vote or a legal sanction by a recognized authority, and so this action would be, is the action consistent with the Constitution or existing law? Is it compatible with US political culture and the values that we have? And does it have popular support? Legitimation may also follow from a process of political interaction and debate that involves all major interests and a full and open airing of the issues and controversies. So, For an example of this, I'm going to use an economic development project that uh, I dealt with when I was working for the city, and it was a market rate housing development that was going into a low income area. And so this project, it needed a parking variance, and so therefore it went up for debate before the City Planning Commission. Uh, The community was split on their support for the for the project for a variety of reasons, including the height of the building, what it looked like, the lack of parking that was associated with it. uh, The fact that it did not have any affordable units in it, despite the area that it was going into. And this issue was debated for hours. Uh, Some concessions were made, uh, but ultimately it passed the planning commission and it went to council. Where it was hotly debated again, uh, the developers were asked to go back and try to settle the issues with the community, and then eventually it would be passed by council. This community engagement and the approvals from several, several legislative bodies can be viewed as the complex view of legitimating the project. Sometimes, to fuel legitimation, uh, this is where the elites can come back in. Lawmakers may use those elites, whether it's cultural uh, elites, athletes, celebrities, other political elites, to try to educate the public or convince the public of the worthiness of the issue that is being debated. And uh, congressional committees, for example, have heard testimony on all kinds of issues. Policies that are adopted without going through this legitimation process do face serious hurdles. They may fail in getting support from the public. Um, Interest groups may oppose them or challenge them in court, and their implementation could be adversely affected. So if we think of the border wall controversy that is currently going on, uh, the government was shut down. Uh, They finally reopened the government decided to debate and then there was a funding bill that went through but it did not provide um, funding for the border wall and so the president although he signed the bill then declared a national emergency and by doing so he skipped the legitimation process and now what's happening is that it is being um, challenged in court And so you can see that by skipping that legitimation process, uh, it faces additional hurdles. And so while the the legitimation process is mostly political, policy analysis is still very much applicable because assessment of this political feasibility and the social acceptability does remain extremely relevant. Additionally, analysis of public opinion on the policy is useful. Uh, It's measuring interest group support and opposition. Uh, And so you might have seen a lot of the polls that came out. Are you for the border wall? Are you against the border wall? Um, And then ethical analysis is both appropriate and helpful to determine what's fair and equitable in a policy decision or how it affects individual choice, uh, freedom, and individual liberty. The things that we really pride ourselves on. So once once it's been legitimated the next thing is to implement a policy And for many the passing of law by the the Congress or the state or city council it signals the end of the policy process but that's really just it's still ongoing or quite frankly it could be just the beginning of government activity that will ultimately affect um, the public uh, more than they would otherwise realize. And so once a policy is formulated and adopted, it must be implemented. And this, according to Kraft and Furlong, involves three activities. There's organization, which is the establishment of resources and methods for administering a program. Uh, There's interpretation, which means translating the, the, the legal language. Uh, What is the plan? What are the directives? What are the requirements? And um, this is typically found in a law or regulation and shifting that into language that those affected can easily digest and understand it. And then there's application, which is the, quote, routine provision of services, payments, or other agreed upon program objects or instruments. So the implementation stage depends on the development of the program's details to ensure that the goals and objectives can be attained. And so one of the primary mechanisms is regulation, as we talked about. And a regulation, which does in fact have the force of law, is simply the rule that governs the operation of a particular government program. Policy implementation is a crucial crucial stage in the policy cycle, because it is where one sees actual government intervention and the real consequences in society of trying to deal with that problem. So who's in charge of implementation? Well, this is typically done by the administration. So it'd be the agencies or um, uh, city manager or the city administrator. They're the ones that implement most public policies in the U.S., And the traditional view of this was that they and their personnel are non-political administrators who simply carry out the will of the legislator by following the guidelines that are set forth in the policy. And they have no say in the policy itself beyond the execution. However, this viewpoint is very unrealistic and it does not consider the influence that agencies and their administrators have in the policy formulation process and quite frankly, the discretion that they have in implementing that policy. And because of this, agency decisions often reflect the political philosophy and preferences of the chief executive. For example, I mean, you have to understand the leaders of these agencies are appointed by the president or the governor. And so they're going to reflect that political ideology. In addition, debates that occur during policy formulation often continue during the implementation stage. All government agencies and programs depend on a continuing continuing supply of money to be able to carry out the various activities that are required to implement a policy. And so we have the budget process. um, And at the federal level, the budget process begins with the president, who makes recommendations to Congress and ends with Congress passing an appropriation bill without which, according to the Constitution, no money can be spent. In between, Congress decides whether to accept or modify the president's budget and in what ways. And some of those decisions depend on performance assessments or judgments about how well agencies are implementing the programs that they're tasked with implementing. The programs that have proved successful probably have an easier time securing uh, the same or even larger budgets, whereas those that are not successful may get less money. Uh, State governments use a biennial budget process rather than an annual one and usually make adjustments in the second year. Uh, The same goes, at least for the city that I worked with, uh, although the township that I work with now is on an annual budget process. Ultimately, agency budgets reflect a compromise between what the chief executive wants and what uh, the Congress or the the legislature, or the City Council, what they are willing to give. So once it's implemented, you have to evaluate the policy and policy evaluation or program evaluation is is essentially just assessing whether they were working well, whether they achieved their goals and so in analysts in doing this evaluation look for evidence that a program is achieving the stated goals and objectives that they set out for. Since money is, quite frankly, king, cost is one of the main reasons for evaluation. Government programs are usually very expensive, and policymakers who are accountable to the voters want to know if the results are worth the money that was spent on the policy. And this is essentially the question that lies at the very heart and soul of policy analysis. In addition to cost versus benefits, analysts have other methods for evaluating policies and programs. But as with policy formulation, legitimation, implementation, evaluation is not merely about the technical study of program results. It does involve political judgment about the worth of the program and decisions that are likely to be of great interest to all policy actors involved with the program. So once a program is evaluated, it may be changed. And so policy change is the modification of the initial goals that were set forth by the policy, Uh, the means that were used to achieve them or both. And this could be minor, moderate, or it can be a, a huge overhauling change policy could also be terminated, um, although that's more rare, uh, but most often a policy or program undergoes a a very small change in an attempt to make it more effective or to meet the objectives of its main um, constituencies or the policy actors that are involved sometimes policy change is major, and it represents a a huge departure from the previous efforts that were taken. So if we think of the Affordable Care Act, that was a huge change to healthcare. Prior to it, any attempt to create a sort of national healthcare policy that did provide insurance to everyone had, had quite frankly been thwarted. On the other side of that, when President Trump took office and the Affordable Care Act came up for debate and they tried to basically um, replace it, we saw that that was unsuccessful. But there was an incremental change that occurred to the Affordable Care Act that occurred in the tax plan that got rid of the individual mandate, and that was more of an incremental change to the Affordable Care Act that was done. So, as you can see, the, the, as we continue to evaluate and reevaluate change programs, the policy process never ends. Uh, what is thought to be a resolution of a problem through policy adoption at one point is later evaluated and, and could be judged to be unacceptable. Uh, and then the parties that are involved may advocate for particular changes or to keep it the way that it is. And so another round of the policy cycle will begin, especially as new people are elected Uh, New presidents, particularly, uh, or if the Congress shifts from one party to another in majority, and, uh, and because the political agenda changes. And so different policies are then formulated and adopted. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's just part of the process and all public policies can be, quite frankly, considered to be experiments in which government and the public learn what works well and what does not. There's no one single thing that's going to truly cure a problem. Uh, When you try to do one thing about a problem, it's likely that another problem is going to pop up. And even in major policy reforms such as welfare, education, immigration, taxation, they have not always produced the changes the reformers thought they would by implementing this policy, uh, and further assessment of the policy change is then often needed. So there are many ways to explain the, po- the process of making policy. Uh, the one I presented to you is the craft and Furlong Policy Process Model, which outlines you know, the six stages. But policymakers first have to clarify a problem develop the options to deal with it then pass and implement the proposals it's a relatively simple process but it's influenced by a lot of different factors and so that's why throughout this process policy analysis and trying to remain objective and find solutions evaluate alternatives is essential to that process and with that I will conclude this episode of The Suburban Urbanist. Thank you for listening. Um, Again, as always, please feel free to reach out via email at suburbanurbanist at gmail.com. Visit my website, suburbanurbanist.com, and I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.